has made many people reevaluate their family needs. It's shown us how to be flexible with work, how much we value spending time with family, and that the simple things like growing a veggie garden, enjoying the love of animals, and helping each other is more important than an expensive home in the suburbs. The positive with COVID-19 is that there has been a lack of cars on the road and people are choosing to live more self-sustaining lives with food and plant swap stands popping up everywhere. Today, we talk about the benefits of building a sustainable home with Ross McKinnon from McKinnon Design and how he's designed homes that enable us to continue to give back to the planet. You're listening to Real Estate Right. Top experts talk about how to buy, sell, rent and invest right. Your host is Sue Langder. It's almost Christmas and at Real Estate Right, we are in the throes of getting new episodes ready for 2021. We have top experts in real estate, including Frank Valentic, Nicole Jacobs and Kiani Mills, all who have been featured in the media as the best in their game. So if you haven't done it already, subscribe, rate and review Real Estate Right wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure you are savvy in all your real estate transactions. Ross McKinnon has over 30 years experience in custom house design and construction in modern and heritage homes throughout regional Victoria and Metro Melbourne. His focus now is on sustainable housing. That's one with a landscape. He is passionate about building and design that will endure both in terms of aesthetics and environmental impact. Welcome, Ross. Yay. How are you? Good, Sue. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Um, So, Ross, how did you get into architecture? I used to love drawing as a kid. Really? Um, And then sustainable architecture happened Following my um, building design, once I'd started work, I was looking at sustainable architecture in my mid-20s. Yeah. That would have been like two years ago, wasn't it? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right, Sue. Yeah. About 32. 32 years ago. Ah, it's amazing how time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. So... In terms of architecture, what's your home like when it comes to uh, what have you done sustainably to your home? Well, interestingly enough, this year we renovated an old shed on our farm. It was an old grain store in perfect condition for a renovation. So it was old and tired. It was built in 1942 during the Second World War. Yeah. Yeah. there was no insulation, no internal linings except for a couple of asbestos walls. So for its time, it was quite innovative. It used this new product called asbestos. Yeah, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a bit like saying now, um, using that nice new product of Caesar Stone 80 years later. Well, that, this is where I'd like to go. Yeah, that's right. So there are all these materials that form a big part of our environment, our indoor environment, which is either off-gassing or it's toxic or Mm. things that we're becoming more aware of um, now with more science. Um, 
And basically it all goes back to the principle of natural materials and leaving it, leaving it in its natural form as much as we can is probably the best thing that we can do. And all these uh, post-manufacturing processes that include chemicals and high embodied energy, which, for example, aluminium mm. is the highest material to produce, it's considering those uh, building elements that, um, that have an effect on us personally or they have an effect on the environment outside of our homes. The grain store we've used, we've recycled KD hardwood windows from a house that was getting demolished. Um, perfectly fine double glazed windows, beautifully constructed, uh, 2.4 metres high, big glass panels. Uh, we've located those on the north of the old grain store. Yeah. We've, we've kept the materials that we, we, we could. So we've got this lovely old floor that um, has lovely cracks and holes in it. And we filled them in, and um, so we saved that floor. We haven't put that to hard rubbish. So you've essentially repurposed a lot of materials, recycled. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. all the internal linings are recycled by the ceiling, which is plywood, which, again, is a manufactured pine plantation product. So every every element of the building is considered. um, We have high-energy-efficient um, LED lights mm-hmm. that now power this space. So this has turned into the office space. Um, the house is next, but the office uh, enables us to show our work in environmental, uh, non-toxic way. Mm. So you practice what you preach. Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now we're going to start off with a listener question. Um, Adam from Frankston has recently fallen in love with the high country and wants to build a sustainable home. What is considered a sustainable home? Um, it's a great question. It comes back to um, your lifestyle and the choices that we make and what our objectives are and, and I guess the process of going forward and, and how to achieve those. So a sustainable uh, Sustainable home is really a concept that we have mm. around our um, own survival and, and what keeps us safe in our house or cocoon um, and how that fits into the larger landscape or the eco, larger ecosystem that surrounds us. So the, the question is, you know, you could be in, in an urban environment in Frankston. Yes. Um, we an urban environment has its own challenges. Um, it's easy to move to the country or be in the country and think that um, when the natural environment is in front of us, um, that we're part of that landscape. Um, and it's harder to imagine that when you're in a city environment. So yeah. sustainable living in, in the, the high country would mean um, some things are naturally in place, like most most uh, houses in regional Victoria outside of the towns are off-grid with their water tanks and their sewage systems. So they're all independent in, in some sense. But then you have the travel of, um, for example, we, we have a 25-kilometre travel to town to get our groceries. So mm. 
um, recently moving the office from town to home means that now we're not um, travelling that every day. And so that has a big impact on being able to work from home or not is a big question around sustainable living. So you could live in the country, but you might be travelling 100, 200 kilometres to your place of work. So the whole COVID lockdown, as an example, uh, has enabled people to work from home and maybe that's a lot of people will embrace that now as, mm. as a lifestyle choice that enables sustainable living. Um, being out here, it's healthy. You know, we don't have um, the urban pollution, but we're, you know, we're polluting the environment in other ways that we may not see that might be runoff to the rivers mm. from from chemicals off the farms for example so there's a lot of things to consider there so yeah we it's it's being mindful of every action that we take obviously city dwellers don't understand the distinction between sustainable living and energy efficient living so we talk about energy efficient living as in uh we've we've put in energy efficient devices like water tanks or solar panels or all that sort of stuff um however that's a product, isn't it, of the fact that the house isn't very energy efficient, isn't it? Um, uh, The the difference, energy efficiency is about the energy that we're using and the demands that we're putting on our house and on on our environment, and it's related to the food that we eat. So Mm. if you're you're off-grid, for example outside of town or wherever, then your diet becomes really important. So if you're a meat eater, you need to keep your, your meat cool in the fridge. And mm. sometimes solar systems can't handle that. Mm. What happens in, with off-grid solar systems, in the old days anyway, um, it's becoming more efficient solar panels and that technology mm. um, with larger systems. But normally um, people would be putting gas fridges in and connecting that to LPG bottles mm. to cook their food. Yes. I've, I've seen somebody do that in a bathing box down at Beau Morris. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> to keep the beer um, cold while they're soaking up the rays at the beach. <laughs> Excellent idea. People are innovative. I think camping gives us a lot of uh, possibilities uh, when we're looking at off-grid living. Um, you know, you have... You yeah. have 12-volt systems and your panels on your four-wheel drives. And I think there's a lot to be taken from uh, when we go camping and and getting out the tent. Uh, You know, living can be quite basic. So we complicate. When we design a house, we overcomplicate it. So so I think energy efficiency is one part of the equation and because of sustainable living. Sustainable living is about... Um, life choices about your diet, but it's, which affects how you keep it cool, um, your food cool. But the sustainable home takes into account what energy it's taken to produce that house and also what it takes mm. to keep that house running. Yes, that's probably a good way of putting it. The fact that it's 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 the construction of it as well as the, the continuous life of the home. Yeah, it's really your overall carbon footprint. So... Mm. sustainability is about that consideration of, like I said before, with the aluminium um, production. It's considered 
considering yes. how much energy it takes and and the transportation of that product to get to your site that you need to start thinking about. Um, th there's ethical choices in there. Um, and greenies, for example, were the only ones thinking of that consideration for decades. If we want to categorise mm. people's thinking around green technology and green buildings, it was it was never a... Um, green. Uh, consideration like it is now so it's becoming a regulatory consideration now and um, so now we have an energy rating system that considers the energy use of the house but also it, it does take into consideration the climate it takes into consideration the building materials it takes into consideration um, the heating and the cooling and it takes into consideration the orientation of the building in that climate and in that landscape. So mm. that's where design is really important yeah. for effective energy efficient homes as, as the starting point and the intention behind that outcome. So um, the conversation and the collaboration with um, the client and, and builders and trades and the industry are really key to achieving that outcome. In saying that, what is the highest energy rating available and how do we achieve that? So it's ranked out of zero to 10 and the yes. minimum requirement is six from a building regulation perspective. It used to be five. That was the starting point. They started the requirement to, to put that rating against houses and, and the design of the houses. So. Yes, it's been updated to six as, as it evolves, as information and, and knowledge uh, comes to light, um, then uh, it will probably go higher. So most homes uh, quite easily achieve the six and above. It's not too hard to get to seven. Um, yes. But there are only 14 projects in Australia that have achieved the 10 rating. So you can see how difficult Wow. So what do we need to get a 10? How do we become a lucky 10? So it's all those things that um, that we've been talking about um, and it's considering mm. um, the lighting, you know, high-efficient yes. high, high LED lighting. Mm -hmm. You look at the air conditioning and the power load on, on all the appliances um, that are put into the building. Um, importantly, it's how the house is designed. Yes. So that includes the orientation of the building. It includes double glazed windows. Mm -hmm. It includes passive solar design principles so that that north orientation here in, in Australia, the southern hemisphere, is really important um, mm. so that we, we design the buildings um, with roof overhangs um, a lot of buildings at the moment, a lot of houses are being designed without eaves. Uh, in oh, that, that is my biggest, biggest bane. Like yep. I just, I cannot believe in Australia we are building houses without eaves or some sort yep. of overhang. Um, it it does not make sense that council allow that to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's my biggest beef. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what happens is. In the, in the design stage, what we do in the design stage is that we design the extent of the eave according to the height of the wall and in the direction that the that, that wall is facing so that in summertime all this can be modelled on the computer mm. 
but um, we can also do it by hand, which is what I still do. Um, yeah. We estimate where the, the sun will hit the wall at what time mm-hmm. of the day um, based on the information that's provided um, from the, the Bureau of Meteorology and also their CSIRO data. Um, so that information gives us the ability to know when, where the sun's going to hit and, and at what angle, at what time yeah. of the day during, throughout the year. And so that means that we can extend our eve in our design to where we need it to be. So what I like to do is um, make sure that the sun at, in summertime on a particular angle is not going to hit the wall, mm-hmm. um, let alone the window. So we might have a, an extended eve beyond what's standard, and that's that's where design comes in, mm. that we can achieve that passive solar design, which is really key as a starting point. And then the next thing is obviously what the building is constructed of, what materials we're using and how thermally efficient those building elements are, either in the wall, in the floor or in the roof. I recently saw something on TV. They had a wire cage and they put broken down bits of brick into the wire cage. It ended up creating like a double brick sort of thickness of a wall and they made it a bit of a feature on the external part of the home and it, it also helped with bushfire protection. Yep. These are ways of obviously recycling materials can use in a sustainable home but also help with yep. insulation and all that sort of stuff as well. It's very, yeah, useful. Yeah, so that... That was, I know that house, that was on Grand Designs. Um, yeah, I think it was that. Thinking like West. Yes, it was out that way. And I spoke to the builder for that particular project because we were interested in what they're also doing in the floor. Mm. But that recycled brick is a fantastic outcome for a brick that is repurposed into something something else. You have, have this embodied energy of as I was saying before, um, clay bricks take up a lot of energy to produce. So to throw them out or tip, put them in the tip is um, terrible. Um, so to be able to reuse that um, embodied energy into another another use for another 100 years or yeah. whatever it is, basically an indefinite possibility with those types of materials. And they do that with concrete as well. You can crush concrete and that can be recycled uh, as road base or any other um, possibility as a building material. Mm. In that King Lake project, they did a concrete slab, which is quite innovative, and it's twice the efficiency of uh, waffle slabs, which are quite efficient in any event. Mm. But um, it's a couple X called couple X, uh, a dome system where they have these series of tubs, like chairs, plastic tubs that interconnect and creates this volume of air under a slab situation. Yeah. And so it's twice the efficiency wow. of a conventional waffle slab, which which are also quite good, as I said. Um, mm-hmm. We're using one of those in the project in Merijik, which is a cold climate at the base of Mount Buller. So they're the sorts of innovative products that can reduce your um, workload on your heating and cooling equipment and, and ultimately your energy bills and how much power the house will use. So it's really important then 
you know, that information gets disseminated from the architects and designers and people in the trade to the client who it opens up the possibility for the owner when they're building, um, when they have advice and consultation with professionals. Yes, exciting. Like mm. it's it, it just shows you that you need to have those right professionals to um, help you come up with all the very innovative ways of, of, of building a home and not just using a yeah. standard architect to do it. You need to have somebody who really understands the whole sustainable living building design concept. Yeah, that intent's really important from a design yeah. point of view. You, you can actually have um, different architects and designers with with a different intent for the outcome. So there's a group of architects that aim to achieve a low carbon, a low or zero carbon footprint. Mm. Builders and trades out there. You know, certain trades and builders are also aiming for the same objective. So it's important to hook into those people and that network of people that offer offer something at another level mm. above the standard design. Um, there are regulations in place mm. to keep everyone to a minimum standard, but then there are other people who want to take it to another level. Um, and you're just not going to get that from a bulk builder, are you? Not until it's regulated mm. um, and the standard improves um so 90 percent of housing is built from a project builder perspective yes and it's an economic drive not an environmental drive and i think that's my own judgment around it that's okay that's what we're here for (laughs) you know eliminating going back to some simple principles that the old houses used to Mm. Corporate, which was ventilated roof spaces they they would put in vents for roofs um now they don't um, we're putting in dark coloured roofs, which is 80% hotter than a light coloured roof. Mm-hmm. That's a fashion. Dark colour bond colours, for example, is, is a fashion at the moment. And um, unfortunately, that's costing people a lot of money in their energy bills. Yeah. It's amazing. It's just those simple things, isn't it? The the, the, the yeah. colour of your house can, can be a complete money burner. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a bit like... <laughs> yeah. You know, black cars, you know, like not quite, but they always, they're always hotter inside a black car, aren't they? Yeah, they are, absolutely. Mm. So back to your question, yeah. um, the like what, what do you need to, to, to do to get the 10-star energy rating? Yes. Um, it's quite difficult. So, you know, you need to look at your building materials really closely about where they're sourced from. And yes. Reducing the uh, the off gassing materials in in your building, so you've got a healthy indoor climate as well, and really looking at the power systems that are powering the house. So heat pumps are a great one for heating the house uh, for the water, but also hydronic heating systems, which are quite efficient. So does that also include, sorry, the um, how they build the house? So, for instance, uh, they're not allowed to use a nail gun. They'll have to use, you know, back to hammer a nail. Well, it doesn't go that far. That's a holistic approach. That would be an ethical approach. And also where things are sourced from, you know, is it, is it Merbu, which is from Indonesian rainforest? Yes. But... Um, orangutans rely on or mm. other animals or are we recycling it from a recycle um, materials place or something like that well that's right um repurpose repurposing um, reuse uh, recycle remanufactured so there's a whole range of um, other opportunities there so to achieve the 10 star you need to think about your air gaps mm. everything's got seals on it low energy 
you've got smart technology that can shut things down, your appliances down overnight. Yeah. So, you know, the time of day that things are running are really important. Mm. Um, but it also might be that to achieve like a, a zero footprint that you might stay grid connected and you might put energy back into the system, which might then offset the um, production of your house um, and the energy it costs to build your house. You might pay that back by staying on, on grid and um, yes. putting energy back into the system. So there's ways to pay back, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, well, I went to King Island a couple of years ago and they're very self-sustaining over there where um, their electricity companies actually pay the households um, money for using their solar and their wind power yeah. um, because they're using that. They sell, off-sell it to the industry and some of these um, households are getting like $1,600 a quarter, mm. you know, as a as a check in their hand, not as a mm. as a you know future rebate to be used in, in the future. It's a check in their hand, mm. and they're loving it. Mm. So you know, we sh- you know, if only we could do that in the big cities. Yeah, and there's there's the possibility that, for example, you know, a small sub a development might have a um, small substation and a microgrid, um, which is self sustaining, produces enough energy to do exactly that. So yeah, um, there are a lot of towns, regional towns at the moment, Euroa is one of them, um, mm-hmm. that are being funded from the government to do exactly that, where they can produce their own power but also be part of that, the answer to the whole grid system. Mm-hmm. Mansfield is another town where renewable energy groups are looking at trying to get a large-scale microgrid so that yes. this is where collaboration is really important and this is where households are effective, uh, effectively off-grid from, from bigger infrastructure um, projects. Mm. We'll have a short break right now and come back with more from Ross McKinnon from McKinnon Design and we'll talk about that off-grid living when we come back from the break. You're listening to Real Estate Right. I'm Sue Langada and I'm on today with Ross McKinnon from McKinnon Design. And we are talking about the benefits and requirements needed to build a sustainable home. So Ross, how cost effective is living off the grid? Is it more that you're doing your duty for the environment or do you think it's also helping the back pocket? Thanks for that great question, Sue. Um, It's really difficult for an individual to get off grid Um, unless you have the money to do it, uh, if you're starting from scratch. Yes. Buying the equipment, whether it's solar, whether it's heat pumps, but just the energy aspect of the the build. Um, But it's also backup generators and things like that, isn't it? Yeah, you have that. So when... When we have the power company go through with, you know, six times a year in regional Victoria, they need to check the the sway lines, um, that they're all in order. Um, you're virtually off-grid for half a day sometimes or even a full day, uh, six times of the year in any event, and then it becomes a case of you are off-grid even though you're connected to the grid because of maintenance. And what do you do in those situations? So classic example is that we have a, a header tank that gives us water while the power's off, mm. uh, which is a real benefit. Now, that's an old old design, 
in an old system for old farms when there was no power and everything, water, water was charged with gravity feed. Yeah. And it's returning to some of those basic principles. So um, it can be really cost-effective to go back to those basic principles to achieve that off-grid living. But it costs to start. It does cost. Um, and sometimes we we uh, demolish that old infrastructure, not thinking around what when we might need it again. And I think with the climate and, and the world heating up and temperatures rising, mm-hmm. some of these design principles are really key to our comfort level. So it's sticking with those um, those principles. So I think affordability is achieved in, in different ways, depending on how far you want to go. If you're building a new house and you want a 10-star home, you're going to be paying a lot of money for an architect and builder to achieve that for you because you'll be you'll be buying in that knowledge capital and that investment around some unique individuals who, who can set you on that pathway. But it's, it's, not, a, it's not a standard uh, expectation of clients or, or designers to aim for those big targets. Um, so it's, I think, you know, there's community, there's government, there's developers, there's individuals. We all have an effect as a community on the outcomes of our housing. And the support we get can be uh, excel through government and through community projects. And then if you lived in a uh, community that was off-grid, so there might be a, a cluster of four or five houses that all share a microgrid, then the investment on that infrastructure is one divided by five. Not, not you're not paying the whole hundred percent. So it's I think it's about strategy when you're wanting to go off grid. It yeah. comes back to the how am I going to get off grid? Yes. Um, can I afford to do it myself? If I, I can't, mm. who do I go to to help uh, with that? And I think more and more uh, people especially with COVID, yes, I think that's been an influencer um, around people's lifestyle choices where they're looking at regional Victoria uh, if they're living in Melbourne. Yeah. I've been inundated with um, inquiries and people engaging my service with that, with a big shift to regional Victoria mm. from people who have decided that this lock, lockdown is... Uh, has enabled them different uh, different decisions around their work. Um, so then, yeah, this is a really important time to be talking about off grid and um, and how we might go forward with um, definitely sustainable living. Uh, like I, I visited a house in Healesville at the start of the year, and they were completely off grid. Had um, uh, so they were top of a hill. In actually, it was in Chum Creek. If, if anyone remembers the bush fires from Black Saturday, yeah. um, Chum yeah. Creek was hit, hit hard. And so this house was built after the fires um, with a fire bunker in the side of the of the uh, hill. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, she had this massive water tank, which was all concrete. Um, yeah. and she used the, it actually worked as a, as a patio for the back of her house because it was so yeah. huge. Um, but she yeah. also had a couple of generators flying around because she had too many trees around her. So she wasn't capturing enough solar 
energy from the sun from it on her panels because the trees that yeah. it's just tall gum trees yeah. everywhere and so she just wasn't getting yeah. what she needed so the generators had to keep going so yeah but she said the cost of running those generators is was exorbitant mm. and then you had to go and drive to the service station and collect the fuel and come back yep all that sort of stuff so that takes yep. time takes energy yes um yeah, and the only heating she had was a wood fire, I believe. Right. Um, she it was all triple brick walls, uh, yep. commercial grade, you know, double glazed windows, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, but it was high up in the hills. It's quite pretty looking out. You know, it's, you saw the dazzling lights of um, Hillsville down the hill through the trees. So well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Like if you if you take the basic principle of collecting wood. Mm. Um, and when you verse that against the, the statement of sustainable living, so I, I collect wood, mm. I burn wood. Um, we're on a property that's not large enough to sustain that. Yeah. So then it's about going to collect it from the forest or then it's about buying it, purchasing it from a wood collect, collector or supplier. So then the question comes back is wood, is a wood fire efficient for, for our home here? And I'd have to say no because it's very labour-intensive as well. If I was to go and chop it and do the fuel for the chainsaw, sharpen the chainsaw, it becomes ineffective. And in the high country, most people have a wood fire and most people expect in their new homes to have a wood fire. Yes. So it's, it's almost the, the pollution from that in town is noticeable now. Even though, for example, everyone's choosing an energy efficient Euro, well, well yeah. I'll name it, a Euro, Euro fireplace. Yeah. I got a Euro, Euro fireplace in my place. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's an example where it's a, a highly efficient uh, wood heater. Yes. But when you have hundreds of them being installed <laughs> because they're so efficient, suddenly you've got air pollution mm. because you're still burning wood. Mm. So although at one level it's, a, it's a, an energy-efficient, um, sustainable um, wood heater, mm. it's not when you, when you get into large numbers. And then, of course, some people would see wood heating as sustainable because they don't have to go out and buy, you know, buy any other form of, of energy yeah. or heating. So um, I think it's a personal and individual's perspective, but holistically it's, it's really not doing anything for the environment it's not sustainable no. um, because we're polluting the air with that so unless we're growing our little forest in the backyard and we we're you know regenerating yeah. that every year that's the only way yeah. it can be sustainable really yeah and even even uh, electrical devices appliances mm. um, where's the source of that well it's a coal-fired power station and or otherwise you're off grid and, and you're on a solar panel, but there's still manufacturing and chemical processes involved in producing that. So it's a real uh, contradiction it is. in terms of, I think, some level we need to be pragmatic to our own lifestyle and go, this is, this is what works best for us, um, keeping in mind the environment mm. and doing the best that we can. You can't do any, anything more than that. So that's all we can do is, is our best. Yes. That's for sure. There's like it, it. It really does depend on how, you know. I suppose anal you want to be with with the uh, the whole concept, or, or you know. But, but 
the, the reality is the more sustainable the the design of the home is in terms of orientation, the products, yep. the materials used, that's half your battle, isn't it? And then yeah, everything yeah. else will yep. be working off that essentially. So yep. your, your water usage, if that's coming off the off your roof, um, you know, if you've got a great design for your roof, you know, make sure that you don't have, you know, trees around your roof so that uh, you don't get the, the browning colour of your staining in your water, um, which can happen, can't it? Because um, mm. trees, leaves stain stain the water and then your water looks brown when it comes out into the pipes sometimes. That's right. Mm. Um, it's still drinkable. I'll it's argue, just stained. I'd argue that that tree is shading your roof to keep you cool too. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so, there's a so where's the contradiction? So there's a whole heap of things that you've just got to work out what's right for you. Yeah, that's right. It, the cost of this, you know, off-grid living, going back to that, is what it, What are we investing in? Um, so are we going to invest in the future for future generations? And how how do we do that? Um, do we put put our hand in our own pocket? Yeah. Or do we let someone, someone else do the work? So the key for me is that whenever... The possibilities of, of designing a house, that question's always asked, uh, in essence, that um, how far do you want to invest in sustainable design? Mm. Um, and then it becomes a lifestyle choice. And then it, it, it is this altruistic perspective. Do I invest in future generations um, and, and, and leave a legacy? Um, and the legacy is that, um, I'm leaving something that someone else can use for generations so that it's important that when you choose a brick that takes high embodied energy that that might be around for 100 to 200 years then you can justify the use of a high high embodied energy yeah. uh, brick or aluminium if you think it's going to last for a long time but the um, sad reality is that um, <clears throat> we transition so much from house to house we'll want to have some form of impact on uh, the design of our own home. And so we have houses which are constantly being evolved, evolved through renovation and, and also demolition. Mm. So sometimes you'll see the, the lovely old Edwardian home getting demolished for something that's modern. Mm. And then, unfortunately, what will happen down the track, it, it does come back to good design, whether a building's considered worthy of, of staying intact and whether whether the function of that building um, was appropriate in the first instance. Yeah, that Edwardian veranda was doing a perfect job in keeping the the heat in when you needed it and the cooling, you know, and yeah. cross ventilations and all that sort of stuff. They're great designs, those old um, Victorians and Edwardians. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, Ross, um, we've talked about energy coming into the property, but how about the energy coming out like water and things like, I suppose, ashes. I get ash after you've had the, your wood fire, all those sort of things. So what are we producing in the homes Byproducts. that affects our environment? Yes, it all affects our environment. So um, how do we deal with that when we're off the grid? There are ways to, when you're off grid in the country, it's easy, you have septic tanks um, and the effluent goes, your sewage goes in, into those septic tanks and then that's spread out into pipes and uh, 
essentially waters your lawn. And when you're in the city, it's much harder to think about um, your excrement and getting rid of and disposing of um, your sewage. Or it's easier to, well, no one thinks about it because it's all connected to the the main grid and it's sight unseen. But there are ways to treat your grey water from your sinks um, and the, the black water from the toilets on suburban blocks and without going into the main system. And there's an example of that that was achieved in Sydney, a Sydney suburb, uh, by a guy called Michael Mobbs. He produced a whole book around how you do that. So that would be a good reference point for people to look at that house. It was pretty much a pioneer. Um, in, in sustain, I think they called it the sustainable house. So how old would how that old, house be? It's probably 20 yeah. years old now. It could be a little bit younger, but around 15, 20 years ago okay. this, this happened. So all the grey water yeah. was treated on site through filtration ponds. So there was yes. also a, probably reed bed systems, um, and that's using plants to aerate the water. And then that water being able to, to be reused for toilet flushing and possibly, I think, for clothes washing. Yeah. So that was all monitored, tested and and deemed quite successful from a scientific point of view that this, um, this house dealt with its own poo, so to speak. <laughs> it recycled everything. It recycled everything. So it was food for the plants. It, yeah. Yes, it was. And <laughs> so you can harvest water in many ways. Yeah. Um, so you can do it from grey water. You can do it from storm water off the street if you wanted to. Yes. There's ways of being able to treat and filtrate water with a lot of pollution in many ways. So I guess there's a lot of science behind that. So that's one one thing to be able to do at a domestic level is to invest in Harvesting your water, collecting the water, using it for your garden, for your washing machine, for your toilets, but then you can also use your grey water for the same things. Um, and then the question comes back to a treatment plant for your black water. And um, so... Are they, are they expensive, those treatment plants? Oh, look, I would, yeah, I would say um, an average... Septic systems around twelve to fifteen thousand dollars, and mm. um, but you know you might in that range you might get those systems in place in a small domestic situation in urban Melbourne. Yes, but that's something to, that that comment really needs to be tested against getting some quotes and and having a design uh, for that particular house. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Thanks for being our amazing expert today on the love and lifestyle of sustainable house design and living. How can our listeners get in touch with you to find out more? Uh, there's a website. I have a website, uh, McKinnon Design, which is M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N, design.com.au. And through that yes. portal, um, there's uh, an opportunity to send me a message. There's also Instagram or Facebook um, mm-hmm. or direct by phone, email. Yep. Um, 
McKinnon Design is the, the best um, way to get in contact with you, either mckinnondesign.com.au or through the Instagram handle McKinnon Design. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, well, thanks again, Ross. We will have um, Ross's details in our show notes as well as in our social media. So next week we will have our Christmas recap of 2020. So it will be just me. We will start 2021 on the 7th of January with Dean Davis from M&Co to talk to us about the process of styling with what questions you should be asking before selecting a styling company to furnish your home for sale. So don't miss it. Real Estate Right is a real copyright production hosted, written and produced by Sue Langada. I would like to thank Podbean for hosting our podcast, Premium Beat for our theme music, Zoom for our video link, Francis Morello for his voiceover and audio stock for sound effects. Real Copyright is a real estate copywriting service running property all over Melbourne since 1998. If you'd like Sue and her team of copywriters to write your property, go through the email address orders at realcopyright.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Real Estate Right on your favourite podcast platform. And if you would like to ask one of our experts a question on the podcast, email your questions to sue at realestateright.com.au. Thanks for listening to Real Estate Right. Right.